Howdy friends and welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. I'm your host Matt Sapala for any new listeners out there and if you're new to this show my aim is to educate and inspire people to thrive in the skin that they're in. Guys, this week's guest does exactly that. Ali McLean is a whole food nutritionist based in Melbourne and she's tackling the chronic disease pandemic head on by influencing the lives of as many people as she possibly can through preaching the benefits of eating whole foods, predominantly plant-based. In today's episode, Ali and I spoke about how to become quote-unquote fat adapted and enabling endurance athletes to utilize fat as fuel which is really really interesting to know so take note of that guys we also spoke about some must-haves on a plant-based diet as well as how to read food labels and a lot of other gold nuggets of information so grab your pens out folks Ali, thank you so much for your time. You're a wealth of knowledge, and I'm so grateful to be able to pick your brain week in and week out on the show. Guys, watch this space for future episodes with Ali. We dive into some specific chronic disease and really go in-depth into this nutrition realm. But for now, enjoy her backstory and take note on the advice that Ali gives about how to incorporate more whole foods on your plate. Don't forget to let us know that you're listening. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, screenshot the cover of the podcast and tag both Ali and Euphoria Health on Instagram. I'd love to see what you got out of the episode and where you're listening in the world. Well, that's enough from me, guys. Take it away, Ali McLean. Ali McLean, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. Oh, hi. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome to have you on the show. Obviously, due to the current world situation at the moment, we're recording this via Zoom, but I'm still really, really pumped to, you know, pick your brain and, and share your amazing journey with my listeners. Guys, a little side note, there is some roadworks going on across the street. So if you hear some trucks and we know Buddy loves to bark whenever I press record on something. <laughs> Buddy's my dog, by the way, Ali. Um, so yeah, yeah if, you hear those, if you hear those sounds, don't be alarmed. Ali, I'm super, super excited to get through your journey and everything that you're doing in the plant-based nutrition realm. But before we get into all of that, talk to us a little bit about your background and what was life like for you growing up? Yeah, good question. Um, I think... You know, for me, I have always been interested in nutrition. Um, so I guess that's important because even as I was growing up, I was always very conscious of what I was eating and sometimes in a really positive way um, and sometimes in a not so positive way. So I guess what I mean by that is I was exposed to my mother who was, you know, dieting quite a lot and it sort of made me think that food was you know calories in versus calories out and it'll either help you to lose weight or gain weight um but as I sort of became an older teenager it became more than that to me because I number one I guess started for the first time experiencing digestive issues so I was naturally playing around with like pulling things in and out of my diet and then I also just started watching and looking at athletes in a different way. And I remember watching our footy players at school and watching Ironman on TV and just thinking, you know, I wonder what, I wonder how these guys would perform if they ate something different, or I wonder if they performed well today because they ate something specific um, for brekkie that morning. Um, and that's really, I guess, um, uh, 
a few different points in my my childhood, that period of growing up in which I started to really become interested in nutrition and why I decided to go on and study nutrition and exercise at, at university. Um, so I guess that's a little bit about like where nutrition for me really began in terms of my life. I'm Melbourne based. I split my time between Melbourne and the surf coast in Torquay. I absolutely love being by the ocean. For me, there's just something really nice about um, not being landlocked and being able to get out and see the water and the, the big open space there. I also love the Torquay community. Like there's a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, lifestyle, work-life balance, obviously like doing things that you love and obviously a lot of, and also a lot of emphasis on health there as well. So I really love the community down there. Yeah, definitely, Ali. One point that I really resonated with during your, you know, childhood is that you really connected with the foods and how they made you feel with what sort of foods you were eating. And I think that's such a really, really important skill to adapt so young. What sort of made you connect to how the foods were making you feel? Because a lot of us, and not only children, but adults walk through blindly and, and don't really connect with how the foods that they're consuming can potentially, you know, contribute to how they're feeling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, I don't, I'm not sure. I have no sort of real pinpoint moments where I, um, where I sort of made that connection between specific foods and how I was feeling. But I've always had, like, as a kid, I had a lot of eczema. Um, I also had digestive issues, like yeah, very prone towards constipation and bloating and <laughs> Flatulence. I can't believe we're there like five minutes into the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think instinctively I just started to, like, I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't drawn to dairy. I was never that kid having smoothies. So dairy wasn't part of a lot of um, what I was consuming as a, as a sort of young teenager or child. Um, I, my dad sort of made me obsessed with vegetables. And so then I started saying to my mum, like, I don't want pasta. I just want all of the sauce and vegetables type thing on my plate. Um, and I don't know exactly, I don't know, I can't pinpoint exactly what it was that made me, how I felt from it, but I just knew that I was navigating my way around what I was eating, probably in a more specific way than other people my age would have done. Yeah, Does that make sense? There was no sort of like, oh, I knew that when I ate gluten, my eczema got worse. I don't think I was um, smart enough at that point. Yeah, definitely. And I think you are, you know, a product of your environment. So you adopt things that you, you know, you see other people doing. And I guess that sort of subconscious connection um, was really evident through your childhood, hey? Mm, yeah, definitely. Certainly as I got older, I got very, um, a lot more conscious of what I was eating and, and how it made me feel. Um, you know, in my early 20s, there was just this day that I'll never forget. I was in, in tears. I hadn't been to the bathroom for a few days, probably about three days. And my stomach was just bloated out like somebody pregnant. And I wasn't hungry because I hadn't been to the bathroom. Um, and that is a point when I decided to really start to commit to not eating gluten, which at that time probably would have been like 2006 or 2005 or something. And like gluten-free products, you were like, you were a hippie from Nimbin or something if you ate gluten-free, you know, and there wasn't much, much in the way of options for gluten-free products. Um, but I decided then that I would start to really reduce my gluten and that, that um, actually made a difference to finally helping me to get some consistency and going to the bathroom for 
what was probably a, a long period of time. Yeah, definitely. And I know we're going to touch on gluten and, you know, the effects and all that later on in the show, but you mentioned earlier about, you know, the connection with athletes and how you were always questioning if the athletes ate, you know, these types of foods, would they potentially have a better output energy wise? Did you ever, being an athlete yourself, I've seen to um, marathon running, I'm, I know you can touch more on that, Ali. Um, did you ever use yourself as a test dummy and trial and error with different foods in terms of um, what made you perform better? I've used myself as a test dummy in a lot of, in a lot of areas in terms of things like, you know, gut pathogen eliminations, food elimination diets. Um, but in terms of exercise, I've never purposefully used myself as a dummy for different ways of doing things. I have, I guess in my sort of earlier, the earlier portion of my training when I started doing like half marathons, um, the guidance I got then it was to to eat before I, I eat before I did a long run, eat before I did a half marathon, but I never ate before I trained. So I just sort of followed the guidance of my coach at the time, which was to have breakfast and then start your run an hour later. But that was actually a contrast to every other run I'd done previously because I never ate before I ran. So that was a little lesson in, well, maybe listen to your body and, and what feels right for you. And from a digestive standpoint, eating before I run is just like the worst thing I could do for myself. Um, and then I guess as my training has progressed and I've gone from half marathons into full marathons, um, I still do all of my training in the morning on an empty stomach because it's what works for me. And then that, that transitions into my race day, starting on an empty stomach. I haven't played around with a lot of like different gels and formulations and stuff personally, because the first time I used a packet gel, it was just instantly like, oh, this doesn't sit right. Um, but there is a formula which I absolutely love and swear by, which, which I do now recommend to my clients, which is a homemade sports gel fuel called Freedom Fuel. And it's just this perfect little blend of raspberries and rice malt syrup and MCT oil and lemon juice and salt and water. And it's, it's just a, uh, this perfect blend of electrolytes and carbohydrates and um, that, that MCT oil, those fats. So I have used myself for a little bit of experimenting, but I guess in the sports nutrition space, it's been not so much purposefully wanting to check out, you know, gel X versus G, gel Y. It's been more of a journey of listening to myself and, and then learning of my own experience. Absolutely love that. And for the listeners at home, Ali, that may not know what you're talking about when you say gels and, and marathon running, can you explain in a nutshell quickly why gels are so useful for um, endurance athletes? Yeah, so endurance, just to set the scene there, we would consider endurance to be anything over two hours. Um, and so anything less than that is not quite endurance, but obviously there's a bit of a spectrum. Like you don't go and do an hour and a half run and you know, that's not endurance at all, but then you do a two hour and one minute run and, and that's endurance. Um, the reason why gels are so beneficial for people that are doing endurance events is obviously because they're exercising for long periods at a time. And usually that exercise is going to be done at a level that would allow for fat to be the predominant fuel source. You know, we've got different fuel sources that our body can tap into when, and ultimately for an endurance athlete, you want to be able to use fat re really effectively. 
but there is going to be a little bridge that needs to be gapped. And that's when some exogenous carbohydrate or um, I guess you'd say external or supplemental form of carbohydrate can be really useful. So that's why we, we use gels in the endurance space is just to supplement and, and bridge that gap. Now, some athletes have a large bridge to gap, so they need lots of carbohydrate, they need lots of um, gels, and then some athletes don't have much of a bridge to gap at all because they're really efficient at utilising fat for a fuel. And that's when, you know, you might just be having a small amount of exogenous carbohydrate coming through. And to give a frame of reference, you know, small amounts, we're talking, you know, 20 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Larger amounts, we're talking up to the 80 to 100 grams of carbohydrates per hour, which for a lot of people is just uncomfortable, which is why we as endurance athletes want to train that ability to efficiently use fat for fuel. So we don't have as big a bridge to gap. Absolutely love that definition there, Ali. And it just goes to show how incredible we are as human beings that everybody is so individualized in terms of what, you know, their body uses as fuel source and how they reach their optimal level um, from an athletic standpoint. Yeah. And then the, the, probably the question that people are thinking in their mind now is, well, what do I use? You know, am I using fat more efficiently or am I burning carbohydrate more efficiently or carbohydrate more predominantly, I would usually say. And it is pretty easy to tell. There is, there is of course, a, like a quantitative way of doing this and we can do metabolic testing. But from a qualitative point of view, you can just assess yourself. You know, are you that person that needs to eat every couple of hours? Are you that person that craves really carbohydrate rich meals or sugar, uh, sugary foods or sweet foods straight after a meal? Are you that person who couldn't fathom going for a run on an empty stomach first thing in the morning? Or do you find that your appetite control really, really increases as soon as you start to increase your training volume by any amount? All of those are signs that you are in more of that carbohydrate dominant um, sitting or you, you know, your body does prefer to use carbohydrates as a fuel source. Um, and, you know, it's a sign that it's probably a good thing to start looking at, well, how do you start, how do you develop that um, metabolic flexibility or how do you develop, develop that metabolism that can more efficiently utilize fats for fuels. So then you've only got a, like a smaller, smaller reliance on carbohydrate as a fuel source. Yeah, definitely love that. And as we're on the topic of using fats for fuel, I'm sure, you know, some of our, some of the listeners would have heard of the, like a ketogenic diet and they may be thinking along that realm. Ali, why is using fat for fuel so important and what are the benefits for doing that in endurance athletes firstly? And the second part of the question is, can non-endurance athletes u- utilize fat for fuel as well? Yeah, really good question. So I like first and foremostly athletes are people, right? (laughs) So we've got to think about the fact that um, like the way we choose to eat benefits us as individuals and as athletes and being able to effectively utilize fat for fuel does just that. It thinks about the athlete as a whole. So for the endurance athlete, that person who's exercising for hours on end, the benefit of using fat for fuel is, is what we call creating that metabolic flexibility and achieving glycogen sparing. So to really hit home, I like to use this, this basically simple math. So if we look at an average athlete, let's say like a 60 kilogram male, 10% body fat, he will have stored on him around about 60,000 calories worth of energy in the form of stored body fat. 
he will also have the capacity to store potentially around about 1200 calories worth of energy in the form of stored muscle glycogen, which is carbohydrate that's stored in the muscles. So a really big difference there, right? We've got 60,000 cows worth of energy in fat, and we've got about 1200 cows worth of energy in the form of muscle glycogen slash carbohydrate when we're looking at the food form. So for this male, if he has an inability to tap into that 60,000 calories worth of energy of fat, then intuitively, you sort of think like, oh, well, he might find himself in a bit of a hole. So then you might look at his output. So let's again use really round numbers. Let's say that he's exercising and requires um, you know, 800 calories worth of energy per hour to support that, 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 that exercise, that movement. Well, if he's only able to use that glycogen, then he is going to run out of energy, right? And he's then going to end up hitting that wall, hitting that wall that we all talk about in endurance space that we don't want to hit. So he can, of course, bridge the gap by taking on some carbohydrate, but he's not going to be able to take on 800 calories worth of carbohydrate per hour because then his gastrointestinal system will start to ring alarm bells and he'll get stitches and like literally it's just not possible to consume that amount of calories and carbohydrates per hour when you're exercising so that's when this individual would benefit from being able to start tapping tapping into that fat for fuel because he's got tens of thousands of calories worth of energy that could sustain him if he were able to more efficiently use that fat to support his his 800 calories worth of energy requirements per hour like I said before, there is always going to be a little bit, a bit of a bridge to gap because you're never just going to purely be burning fat for fuel. But if you've got better ability to burn fat, then it means the bridge to gap is smaller. So then maybe the requirement for carbohydrates becomes like, you know, 20 grams or 60 grams per hour. Um, and therefore, the amount of calories required is, you know, like 80 or 120 calories required. And that becomes a lot more sustainable for the digestive system to tolerate. So then this athlete, they can go and, you know, hopefully run for hours or run, swim and cycle for hours without A, hitting the wall and B, and or B, experiencing that gastrointestinal upset. So for the athlete, that's like, that's the mecca. That's, that's why we want to be able to effectively utilize fats for fuel. In terms of day to day, like number one, the recovery, you know, if, if you're an endurance athlete, you've got a lot of training to do. And for a lot of athletes, there's a lot of training to do, but you know, it might be anywhere between, you know, 12 and 14 hours of exercise per week. And so your next training session is only going to be as good as your ability to recover from your previous training session. You know what I mean? So the quicker that your body can mop up the oxidative stress that, that takes place as a result of exercising, um, the better your body is then going to be able to get up and perform the next day or later that, later that day at your next training session. And so being able to utilize fats helps to reduce the, um, the oxidative stress or reduce the, um, the production of what's called reactive oxygen species, which means there's then less um, oxidation and less recovery needed from that point of view.
Wow, so that is so interesting. Exercise, recovery, there's a, there's a lot more I could go, but you know, if we look more broadly at things like metabolic health and the inflammation associated with poor blood sugar control, um, the, the digestive discomfort that comes with really poor appetite control and needing to eat very regularly, these are areas that all start to become addressed when your body can finally effectively use fat for fuel. And in terms of the non-endurance athletes, so people that are training for like power or sprinters or um, uh, power lifters or anything like that, can they still utilize fat for fuel, even though they're only requiring short bursts of energy? So for, the, for those athletes, the benefit in becoming metabolically flexible is really that they are sparing the muscle glycogen for when they need it the most. So in those sorts of pursuits, um, you the preferred fuel source is going to be glycogen because they're using what we call the anaerobic energy system. So they, they need to use carbohydrates essentially for fuel. So they're not going to be benefiting from fat adaptation whilst they're lifting the barbell, for example, um, but they are going to benefit from fat adaptation when they've got adequate glycogen, they're available to lift that barbell and, or when they haven't got so much, um, uh, inflammation taking place as a result of their their day-to-day fuel utilization because don't forget if we've got sort of this metabolic flexibility as an athlete then that applies still to us during the day right so during the day you know between i don't know the hours of nine to five let's just use this example we're still going to either use predominantly fat for fuel or predominantly carbohydrate for fuel so that individual who's still really relying on sugar as a fuel source is going to have generally greater amounts of oxidative stress to deal with so for that power athlete reducing that inflammation that oxidative stress as a result of their day-to-day food choices is then going to have a flow-on effect to their their recovery and then of course their training which then of course means their performance and i guess it's really important to understand the role that um fat for fuel can play in various different tasks of your day, whether you're an athlete or, you know, you're an office worker at nine to five, like you said before. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to just touch briefly on keto because you mentioned that before and some people might be fixated on that. Um, I look at LCHF or lower carbohydrate, healthy fats as being a spectrum right? So along this spectrum, we've got varying amounts of carbohydrate that may be consumed, um, but ultimately we want to sit somewhere on this spectrum if we want to teach our body how to efficiently utilize fats for fuel. So on this carbohydrate spectrum, we may have sort of the upper end of the spectrum, which looks at around about 150 grams of carbohydrates per day being consumed which means that there would be allowance and room for a serve of whole food carbs with most meals of the day. But then down at this other end of the spectrum, this other extreme, we've got the ketogenic diet, which sees individuals on around about, you know, between 20 and 40 grams of carbohydrates per day. So just to be clear, in most of the work that I do with athletes, we would be hovering towards that that other end of the spectrum, sort of anywhere between like 80 to 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. I find that the athletes that put themselves on a ketogenic diet are the ones who, you know, two, three or four months later are coming into clinic saying like, 
I thought, I thought if I went keto that I would, you know, I'd benefit from reduction in inflammation and that sort of thing. But ultimately we do need some carbohydrate in the diet to support either anaerobic or aerobic exercise. And for that reason, like the extreme of the ketogenic diet really does need to be um, considered quite carefully before an athlete goes on it. And I guess it's very individualized, isn't it? You know, like you mentioned the spectrum before and health is a spectrum um, and it's very individualized and you would tailor their sort of intake of um, macronutrients based on that, correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you're so right. Health is a, is a spectrum. You know, we, we love to, we love to pigeonhole things. We love to classify a diet. We love to classify a, a macronutrient ratio or profile and, say, all right, we fit in that box, we fit in this category. Um, but ultimately, everything's a bit of a sliding scale. You know what I mean? Definitely. And I um, think it comes back to that point of us trying to find, you know, like a one size fits all sort of approach when really it's not as simple as that, is it? Yeah, nutrition is 100% relative to the individual. And that's why I love practicing as a nutritionist, because it means we do get to cut through some of what's out there in the media what's touted as a good diet as a bad diet and we actually get to or i actually get to you know look at the individual take into account all of the different points of information to help develop a wonderful protocol for them whether it be their pathology whether it be their lifestyle whether it be their food preferences their ethical choices and then looking at their training schedule and then you know we might look at a poo sample and assess their gut microbiome so there's all of these wonderful different points of information that can be taken into account to help devise a really tailored diet for somebody as opposed to saying like that food's good and that food's bad. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Ali, now I love where this conversation is heading. It's raised some <laughs> really aha moments in my note taking as well. Um, before we get into more about using utilizing fat for storage and commonly people would associate, you know, high fat con contents with, you know, cholesterol and cholesterol is often one of these words that gets thrown around a little bit. But before we get into all that, I want to talk about your plant-based journey. And when did that sort of begin for you? Mm. So my plant-based journey, when did it precisely begin? Probably around about 2010. Um, I made a decision then to just start reducing my reliance on animal protein. And then I moved to the US in 2011 and I picked up this book and I think it was called Eating Animals. And I just learned all of these different stats, which just really hit home for me how terrible meat production was you know the stat that the average kfc chicken is slaughtered at the age of 18 days and that they're fed of they're full of so many hormones that they grow so quickly they can't even stand up on their own two feet because they're not strong enough to hold their load or because they're fed so many antibiotics because they're living in such close proximity to the other chickens around them that they wouldn't survive those 18 days if they didn't have the antibiotics to you know um, protect themselves against all the, the bugs that are being transmitted. And so from that point, I decided that I was going to go purely plant-based. And because I was living in the US, I didn't have like a really, I guess, tight network of friends at that point. So I didn't feel like I was going to be any more socially isolated if I decided to go purely plant-based, if that makes sense. Because 
social, I think the social ramifications of going on a plant-based diet are one to be considered, you know, if you're surrounded by people who eat meat and stuff. Um, so 2011 was when I first went purely plant-based and I was so for probably about eight months to a year. And then I decided to start letting some animal protein come, come into my diet, but only from animals that I knew had been raised and slaughtered in a specific way. So I had, at the time I had friends with sheep and so I just used purely lamb off their property and did that for probably a couple of years. And then again, a few years later, decided I was going to go back to plant-based and it probably would have been about 2016 by this stage. And then there were a few really poor things that were taking place with my health that really made me reconsider that choice. So um, I went through a really emotional time in my life. Work was really hectic. I started training for marathons. My digestive um, issues had become a lot of, a lot worse. I found out I had a parasite. And so at that time, I decided that I would start eating animal products to bring my health up to speed and to then transition back to plant-based when I had managed to get everything back in order, when I'd got my digestive system in order, when I'd got my iron levels back to where they needed to be because they were affected by both my dietary choices and my gut health. And so it was probably about two years ago now that I was able to transition back to a predominantly plant-based diet. I don't currently eat a 100% plant-based diet. Again, that's why I hate sort of labels and boxes because I do get, I guess, some trash from people on social media when they see that I eat eggs at the moment. Um, but that's a little bit of my journey. Yeah, definitely. I love that. And as we spoke about before, health is a spectrum and it's very individualized to everyone's palate. And, you know, you've researched what is working for you and that is totally fine. Yeah, absolutely. The, ultimately, you know, my choice to go plant-based and the reason people go plant-based, you know, it's, it's very varied and really personal. I think if you are going to go plant-based, you've got to be really clear with what your reasons are. But my, my primary reason for becoming plant-based was because I didn't want to A, expose my body to animal protein that was just so far gone from like a natural way of raising product right? Like that's how I see meat production these days. It is not about raising animals. It's literally production lines. Um, and I also saw myself as playing a role in helping to change that. So by reducing the amount of animal protein I consumed, I was in my small way starting to reduce the pressure that we put on the reliance for like mass meat production. And that's still my goal today. My goal today is still to help educate the broader community on how they can reduce their reliance on animal proteins so that we can, you know, one day stop factory farming and stop having to use um, growth hormone to help an animal grow and stop having to pull down beautiful rainforests because we need that much more in the way of animals out there on the pastures so that we can feed people their three meat containing meals per day that for me was why i originally became plant-based and i decided that i'd have to go close to 100 percent plant-based if i really wanted to stand by my by my reasons and set set an example that's what i thought i needed to do set the example um, but now because of the, the sort of the health hole that I found myself in in 2016, 
I do include eggs just because if I do that once or twice a week, I know I'm getting a really great source of B12 without as much reliance on a supplement. And that's my choice. And I think that's fine. And I love working with people who want to tailor their plant-based diet to help um, see them be as close to their values as possible. And of course, maintain their health we all reduce our intake of animal proteins and the reliance on animal proteins like we touched on before we're going to have a greater impact than you know 10 people being perfectly vegan so to speak if that Mm. makes sense yeah yes exactly Amazing, Ali. And we spoke about cholesterol before. I'm really, really pumped to get into this. This is something that is a little bit of a passion project of mine, studying nutrition myself. Um, oh. talk, to us, talk to us a little bit about the role of cholesterol. I know, you know, for people at home, they may think cholesterol as only a bad thing. Talk to us a little bit about the good and the bad in cholesterol for us, please. Yeah, isn't it interesting? For so long, cholesterol has been demonised to the point where we've actually forgot that there is a physiological role for cholesterol in the body. And really, cholesterol has been demonised ever since probably like the 1960s because of some research that was done um, by a researcher by the name of Ansel Keys. And I don't know if you've heard about this particular study, but it was called the seven country study. And so Ansel hypothesized that where there were high intakes of saturated fat, that maybe there would also be high incidence of um, cardiovascular disease and a correlation between those two things. So in this study, the seven countries study, what he found that there was a correlation. So there was a correlation between saturated fat consumption and cardiovascular disease. And from that is from that piece of research is where really the, the low fat era began. So that study was like printed on the front of the New York Times. Food and beverage man- manufacturers then started to reduce the fat content of their foods and what and guess what? They also started to increase the sugar content of their foods at that time as well, just to make it more palatable. And it's only come to light in like the last five or so years that that study was actually done looking at 21 different countries. And when you look at the data across all 21 countries, there was no correlation between the intake of saturated fat and incidence of cardiovascular disease. So I just highlight that because It helps people, I think, to understand, ah, so this is where we started to become really afraid of saturated fats within our diet. So I'm talking about saturated fats within animal products, um, but then also the saturated fats that are consumed or contained in um, uh, coconut products as well. The next thing to then think about is, okay, well, if saturated fats aren't the demon because you know, potentially they contribute to cholesterol levels, we've got to understand what is cholesterol. So um, cholesterol very simply is is essentially lipids, lipids floating around and we have different types. So we have what's called HDL, which is high density lipoproteins. We've got LDLs, which are considered low density lipoproteins um, and they play different roles. First and foremostly, though, cholesterol in itself is required 
or fats in themselves are required to do things like support the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. They're required for um, maintaining cell membrane integrity. So without cell membrane integrity, we don't have much. Um, they're also required for supporting um, hormone production, for energy levels, for brain function. So these fats, this cholesterol is really, really important. Do you want me to go into things like HDL, LDL? Please. Okay, cool. So we've got these uh, different lipoproteins, varying densities, which have, I guess, got their own labels given to them over the last few decades. So we've got HDL, high-density lipoprotein, which is that lipoprotein which helps to transport cholesterol um, away from the arteries and towards our liver where it's eventually excreted. And so for that reason, HDL has been branded as the good cholesterol. We've then got LDLs, um, low density of proteins, which are our transporters for cholesterol um, in the blood. And these, th these have been branded as the bad cholesterols. And that's because they can easily be oxidized and therefore contribute to that process of atherosclerosis, which is like the thinning and the, hardery, the hardening of arteries. But what we don't talk about and talk enough about is the fact that LDLs are not all quote unquote bad. So we've got what you might consider to be large and fluffy or large and buoyant LDL particles. And then we've got these small and densely packed LDL particles. And these small and densely packed LDL particles are what is going to contribute to risk of atherosclerosis. And it's these small and LDL particles that we really need to be dialing in on and keeping tabs on. So if we look at a, a lipid profile on a blood test result, for example, you will get total cholesterol, you'll get a view of HDL, LDL, triglycerides, which I haven't come to yet, and then you'll also get a view of total cholesterol to HDL ratio. And it's this total cholesterol to HDL ratio that I look at almost first when I'm reviewing that lipid panel over and above total cholesterol, HDL or LDL, because this TC to HDL ratio, we say for short, this is what's indicative of whether or not that individual has got large, less densely packed LDL particles or whether or not this individual has got more of the small, more densely packed LDL particles, which are the ones that we want to avoid. The other thing that we'll see there on that lipid profile is triglycerides. So triglycerides are, again, lipids circulating in the blood. And often these will be high um, when, when those triglycerides aren't being used as a fuel source, okay? Now, these triglycerides will also be high when there's more of those small, densely packed LDLs. So when we're dialing in on a lipid profile, the, the the number, the two things to look at are that total cholesterol to HDL ratio, where ideally we want to see it um, at 3.53 or less, depending on whether you're um, male, female. Um, and with those triglycerides, we want to see them between 0.5 and 1. 
Now, triglycerides are quite variable depending on the day, which is why we've got to look at those two together. So the TC to HDL, as well as the triglyceride level. That's where we really get an idea of whether or not um, there is a quote unquote issue with cholesterol in an individual, rather than simply looking at total cholesterol in isolation or looking at LDL cholesterol in isolation. Yeah, definitely, Ali. And I know that cholesterol as a whole often gets very demonized in terms of how we approach it and how we base our diet. But not often do we look at the role that our lifestyle plays in terms of breaking down, you know, our f food for fuel. So what role does mm. our lifestyle play? In um, well, I mean, I guess I tend to skew more towards the, the dietary side of things, which of course is part of your lifestyle choices. And this is, I think, um, a part and i'm going to take i'm going to like diverge a little bit and then come back around to discussing it but this is where i think the plant-based community can become uh can fall into potentially a bit of a false sense of security because you know believing that through taking animal products out through taking saturated fats out of the diet then there's going to then be this immediate protection against um, elevated triglycerides and elevated levels of those small, that small dense LDLs, because we can still do some really bad things on a plant-based diet, which will contribute to the production of these LDLs, these small densely packed LDLs. And one, one of those is to consume trans fatty acids. Now, trans fatty acids are essentially vegetable oils that have been chemically altered to stay at solid or semi-solid um, semi-solid states at room temperature. Okay, so vegetable oils, plant-based, um, which are chemically altered to stay solid or semi-solid at room temperature. And these are used in things like margarines, they're used or found in things like deep fried foods. So we're talking you know, chips, potato cakes. Um, they're found in commercially packaged baked foods. So we're talking about things like pastries, croissants, um, muffins, which could still be plant-based, uh, and then other frozen foods, you know, pizza, for example, which could still be plant-based. And these trans fatty acids um, are incredibly dangerous. They say that even, if, even if something like 2% of your total energy intake comes from trans fatty acids, that poses a significant um, risk factor to cardiovascular disease. And that's primarily because what these trans fatty acids do is they raise LDL levels. So they raise the quote unquote bad cholesterol and therefore would influence that small dense lipoprotein. And at the same time, they decrease HDLs. Now, HDLs are, are helpful. They're very, very helpful. And so to decrease those is detrimental. So trans fatty acids, first and foremost, they need to be excluded, which means the pre-packaged deep fried foods need to become a thing of the past in order to optimise that lipid profile that I've been talking about. And then the other thing is excess carbohydrates and processed carbohydrates because of the influence that these have on triglyceride levels. So I use excess carbohydrates because when we're eating carbohydrate in excess and carbohydrate that then can't go on to be stored as glycogen, 
um, this will then be trans, like trans, um, what am I trying to say? <laughs> Transverted, yeah, to, um, to triglycerides um, via the liver. And that's when we start to get those high circulating levels of triglycerides. And if we're coming back to what I was talking about before, if we're these, these quote unquote sugar burners, so we're not very well adapted to use utilizing fats for fuel, or we use this term fat adapted, if we haven't been through that process of fat adaptation um, and our body can't effectively utilize fats for fuel, then that's when these triglyceride levels will start to increase in the blood. So avoiding trans fatty acids, avoiding excess consumption of carbohydrates, specifically processed carbohydrates are two of the biggest considerations when it comes to dietary choices and therefore lifestyle choices. Love that summary for us. Thanks, Ali. That was very in-depth. And I think a lot of the listeners will take a lot out of those points. We spoke about, you know, foods that are necessarily labeled as plant-based, but aren't necessarily healthy. And I think it's a really important point to raise. And it's everything that I've based my, you know, personal diet off and encourage my um, clients to adopt a whole foods mentality. So limit the amount of processing that you're eating stick to fruits and vegetables and within all the yelling and screaming within this you know industry whether that's nutrition or personal training fitness industry the one thing that we can all agree on is that fruits and vegetables are healthy so why not incorporate more of those yeah absolutely like you know we say in clinic just eat real food um and use that acronym jerf there would be a lot of a, a lot of illness avoided and a lot of controversy um, and controversial discussions avoided if we all just really like came back to the fact that just eating real food is is where it's at and this applies to the to the to the plant-based community uh, as much as everybody else because there's still a large large subsection of the plant-based community that are looking to processed foods and packaged foods as well so, you know, things um, that they haven't necessarily learned about how to read the label of and things that might still be full of like GMO soy or um, non-organic soy or excess salts, excess sugars, you know, various preservatives, all of these things that can still be found in, in prepackaged plant-based foods. Amazing point there, Ali. We spoke about fatty acids before and, and what are those sources of essential fatty acids and where can we get them within our diet yeah so we've got we've got various different essential fatty acids and the two that we talk about the most are our omega-6 and our omega-3 fatty acids okay so um these these are found in things like um different different oils so different seed oils different nut oils different nuts and seeds as as well as in um, fish and these oils obviously are essential because we don't make them ourselves, which means we do need to take them in through the diet. Um, I guess omega three is the one that we celebrate the most, right? And that's because traditionally we can get more than adequate amounts of omega six in through the diet, especially if we are having a lot of seed oils and stuff which we find traditionally in a lot of pre-prepared foods and cooking in the plant-based community or actually no i'll go back a step before i go to the plant-based community the reason why we need to 
place a lot of consideration into omega-3 is because it is quite easy for us to get omega-6 in the diet because of processed foods and it, because it is found in there. And fortunately, so much so that in the West, we have a really skewed intake. So we have this high proportion of omega-6 intake around about 15 to 1. So 15 parts omega-6 to 1 part omega-3 in the West. And in some places, like some places of the US, it's like 30 to 1. But we want it the opposite direction. Ideally, we want it 1 to 3. So 1 parts omega-6 to, to 3 parts omega-3. And that's because omega-3s have got such, a, such beautiful anti-inflammatory properties. And omega-6, when having too higher amounts, can have pro-inflammatory properties. So it's this real fine line when it comes to omega-6 consumption. So omega-3s, this is where the plant-based community really need to make sure they're getting adequate amounts of these essential fatty acids. And that's because there are different types of omega-3 fatty acids. So we've got EPA, DHA, and then we've got ALA. And EPA, DHA, specific, specifically um, DHA, is what we need to be looking for in the diet um, because Although we can get ALA in the diet, which then gets converted to these, this DHA within the body, the conversion process is really poor. Now, ALA is, is, what, is the type of omega-3 fatty acid that we find in you know, flax seeds and flaxseed oil and other nuts and seeds, but the DHA is what we can't find in, the, in most plant-based sources. And there is a risk for those in the plant-based community that if they are purely plant-based, then they are low on those EPA, DPA, sorry, EPA, DHA essential fatty acids. And these are really important, particularly in women who are pregnant because this EPA, DHA is so, is so crucial to um, uh, brain development and function, nerve cell development and function. Uh, which is, you can probably appreciate, are really crucial when you're trying to develop and grow a fetus. So in, in a, for a lot of those in the plant-based community, I do recommend some form of omega-3 EPA DHA supplement. And we can look to a form that isn't animal-derived. So you can get an algae-derived EPA DHA supplement, which... I actually think is a really nice inclusion in a purely plant-based diet. Yeah, love that. And I think it's really important to raise that not only the plant-based community can be deficient in these sort of essential fatty acids, but the whole community as a, as a broad spectrum can also be as well. Mm, yeah, oh, definitely. Um, it's certainly not a, um, an issue isolated to the plant-based community. We're just at slightly greater risk, but, you know, how many people do you meet that don't like eating salmon or trout or sardines and mackerel because they just don't like the taste of them or they don't know how to cook them? Um, that's where we get these these real um, potent, like that, that's the real sort of natural and potent source of EPA, DHA, and not everybody's eating that or eating that in enough, in enough of an, an amount that is going to support their requirements. Ali, you mentioned before about how to read labels and I really really think that's a crucial skill um, for the general population whether you're plant-based or whether you're not to be able to understand for listeners at home can you please give us a quick understanding of how you would read, read labels and the key things that you would look out for when you're at the supermarket and you're reading labels 
This is such a great question. I could literally spend half an hour on this discussion, but we'll try and try and narrow it down to a few key areas. So just to help you navigate that food label, you're going to have a couple of different parts. One will be the ingredient list. And that ingredient list is key for you to understand because it lists everything that's there in the food in its contribution to the end product. So at the top of the list will be the thing that's there the most. And at the bottom of the list will be the, the ingredient that's there the least in that food product. I think that's really key because if you can see that like a really poor quality oil, let's say sunflower oil is number one on the list, then I would not be using that product. Or if you see that like the product is being promoted as let's say a quinoa chip, but quinoa doesn't fall until the bottom of the list, you'd sort of think like, why is this company like trying to draw me in with something like it being a quinoa chip when it's not really made of that much quinoa? (laughs) Maybe there's maybe some other really shitty ingredients in this product. I hope I can swear on this, on this podcast. Um, So under, (laughs) <laughs> understanding how that ingredient list works is is really important to you, therefore being able to appreciate what's being used in that, that end product. Ultimately, I recommend that if you're trying to eat real food, but you are having to buy prepackaged foods with ingredient lists on them, then you are trying to look for a food that has ideally no more than five ingredients in there. If it's got five ingredients and you recognize what those ingredients are, then I would consider that to be not a bad packaged food choice because I appreciate that we can't all live our lives making you know, meals from scratch and only using whole ingredients. So that's the ingredient list. And then the other area that you'll see there is the actual nutrition panel. And so on the nutrition panel is where you will get to see things like total energy, and then you'll see a breakdown. So the energy that's contributed by carbohydrates, fats, protein, and then there may be some other nutrients and minerals referenced on that nutrition panel as well. And that really is sort of up to the manufacturer as to what else might appear on there beyond energy, carbs, fats, and protein. Now, you'll see, you'll see these things per 100 grams of the product and then you'll see it per serving of the product. So firstly, when you're looking at this nutrition panel, you want to discern the difference between the per 100 grams, which gives you like a percentage um, figure, and then you want to look at per serve because sometimes where companies will try and trip you up is that they'll make the serve a much smaller person than any average individual would actually consume. So I remember once I, I bought like this um, limited edition Mars bar, which makes me sound like the worst nutritionist in the world, but I was young at the time. Um, and I remember this Mars bar was a special edition and it had like two almost fun sized Mars bars within the one packet. And so you look on the back of the Mars bar and per serve, like, oh, you're like, oh, okay, it's got that many grams of carbs and that, that much fat and sort of thinking maybe this isn't so bad. But then when you dig into it, you'll see that each one of those little fun sizes is, is considered a serve and therefore there were two serves in this one packet. And that's just one example, but there are so many ways in which companies will try and trip you up. Like um, I was doing a demonstration, I think it was on a Doritos packet and within the Doritos packet, like those bigger ones, there's like eight or 10 serves in there. And 
I don't many, I don't know many people who are sh- sharing that packet around 10 people in the one sitting. You know, usually it would be maybe two or three people in the one sitting and often one person in the one sitting. So you've got to pay attention to that serving size. And then the next thing I usually dial in on is the amount of carbohydrate per 100 grams or looking at a percentage of the carbohydrate and if it's there the sugar ideally with that sugar you don't want it to be more than more than six percent ideally less than six percent but yeah you're looking for something that's fairly low in sugar as well so i guess they're my three top tips when it comes to reading food labels is number one dialing in on that ingredient list and being really clear about what sits at the top and how many ingredients sit on that list. Number two is looking at the size of the serving and making sure that your consumption is aligning with this with the serving size or if not understanding how your decision to eat two or three servings at a time impacts things like the total energy or the total carb intake. And then number three, I recommend looking at what percentage of that product is sugar. Yeah, absolutely love those points there, Ali. And I think they're really, really crucial as well. Like there's a lot of marketing that goes into the design of a product in terms of, you know, what catches your eye and how they record the label. You mentioned the quinoa chips that has like 4% quinoa in them, which is, you know, ludicrous, but it sucks people in. And there's a lot of clever minds that do those sorts of things. And I guess this is a really, really important topic, Ali, because now in the plant-based game, there is a ton of new pre-packaged products that are coming out in the supermarket shelf, which is fantastic for the plant-based community as a whole. But I think it's really important that, you know, the wider community knows how to actually read and distinguish what is actually in the food they're eating. If you can't understand a word that's on the back of your nutrition panel, it's probably not worth eating it. Would you agree? Yeah, exactly. Or if there's numbers there, it's probably worth trying to avoid that as well. But um. The, the brainwashing that gets done is, is also incredible. And, um, you know, food manufacturers have caught on to the fact that, you know, vegan is associated with healthy or that gluten-free is associated with healthy or that organic is associated with healthy. And so manufacturers will use those things on the front of packets to try and make their product look healthy. But as we just sort of talked about earlier, like there's so much gray that we need to appreciate. And so a vegan diet can't be pigeonholed as good or bad. There's going to be all of this gray in there. And the same with organic, like not all organic products are good because there might be a shed load of sugar in there, for example, which is no way going to be supporting someone's ability to become fat adapted, for example. Definitely. It goes Um, back to our just eat real food conversation we're having before. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I had um, one client walk into clinic once and I hypothesised that he came to see me because he thought he'd get the, the response that he wanted from me and that was that he had been told by his doctor that his cholesterol levels were too high, his blood pressure was too high, his triglyceride levels were too high and so were his fasting blood glucose and fasting insulin levels. And he'd come to me because he wanted to go plant-based and as I often do with somebody who's newly, newly making that transition is I asked why. And the response I got was that there is a very, a very well-known, world-class trail runner who is plant-based. And 
for me, that's not really good enough if you can't more clearly articulate the benefits of your plant-based diet. And I say that because this person still wanted to eat Domino's pizza and was not willing to let go of their Domino's pizza, but was happy to let go of the meat on that pizza. And this is again where the pigeonholing becomes really dangerous because vegan in itself or plant-based in itself, that's not enough to reverse fasting blood, high fasting blood glucose or high fasting insulin levels or high blood pressure if you are going to keep consuming highly processed carbohydrate-rich foods free or void of the antioxidants that we find in whole foods, you know, fresh fruits, vegetables, whole nuts and seeds, cold-pressed oils. No amount of veganism, if it comes in the form of a Domino's pizza, is going to reverse your risk for cardiovascular disease. I'm sure world-class trail athletes are not, trail running athletes are not eating Domino's pizza either. (laughs) love that point there Ali great great point there we could chat about nutrition panels and and all that sort of stuff for days and I understand we're both you know a bit pressed for time so I'm gonna summarize a few next points in a nutshell for you and I guess Mm -hmm. a really important thing when you're talking about just eating real food and just eating whole foods is you don't know where to start so I I often in in the shop um, in the kind butcher shop, people come in and, and they're not sure about where to start in terms of structuring a meal. And I think this is a really, really important tool for people that are adopting a plant-based diet, so to speak. So we don't end up resorting to those heavily processed vegan label foods that aren't necessarily healthy. How would you structure a meal for someone that is initially just turning plant-based, Ali? Yeah. And this also applies to the broader community. I think, you know, we've gone so far away from real food that so, so many people don't even know what, how to structure their meal or put on their plate. And then you couple that with someone who doesn't know that. And then they go um, to a plant-based diet. Then there's like this whole other level of like, Oh, what do I put on my plate? Um, so I like to break it down really, really simply for people. And of course, there's going to be some variances here because as we've already talked about, nutrition is very relative to an individual and their point in their, their life because our nutritional, nutritional requirements are always evolving and changing. But I sort of like to start with a checklist and I explain to my clients, like I want you to put this checklist there at the front and centre of your mind every time you come to build a meal, at least until it becomes habitual. And so the first thing on that, on that checklist is non-starchy vegetables and or berries. So I classify most vegetables to be non-starchy except for sweet potato, potato, beetroot and parsnip. But the rest is like go your hardest, get as much of these on the plate as you can, but two cups is a nice place to start. We're going to go more into the detail. I do, I do recommend that one of those cups is green and one of those cups is coloured. So, you know, it might be a cup of kale and spinach and then next to that is a combo of carrot and mushroom and tomato, for example. But those non-starchy veggies where the abundance of antioxidants are going to come through, which is going to help with that lipid profile that we were talking about before and that training recovery that we were talking about. And of course, fibre, which is so, so important, again, for cardiovascular health and digestive health. And then the next thing on this virtual checklist is protein. And for some reason, uh, those that aren't within the plant-based community have this fear that if they enter the plant-based community, they're not going to get enough protein. And that's not the case. We can get protein from things like tofu and tempeh. We can get it from hemp products like hemp seeds and 
and hemp um, powders. We can get it from other protein powders like pea protein powder. Um, we can get it from a combination of different legumes. And I often recommend if we're looking at servings, then tofu or tempeh, so between like 130 100, or 180 grams per serve, depending on your size, um, lentils and legumes. I actually recommend that you always pair them with some sort of nut or seed because often the people can't tolerate a full cup or a cup and a half of beans, for example. But if that became like a half a cup and you supplemented the rest of the protein needs at that meal with a tablespoon or two of hemp seeds, then it makes the digestion uh, a lot easier. So that's our protein. And then the, the third item on this virtual checklist is anti-inflammatory fats. So the, the amount per individual is going to change a little bit, but I think between one to two serves per meal is a nice place to start. So, you know, one serve would be the equivalent of half an avocado or two tablespoons of cold pressed oils or two tablespoons of nuts and seeds or their butters, or it might be the equivalent of a, a, a hundred mils of coconut milk or coconut cream. And then finally on this list, we've got our whole food carbohydrates. And as I talked about earlier, carbohydrates sit a little bit, sit on this spectrum. And so depending on what your goals are and what your health status is, you might have allowance for whole food carbohydrates with every meal of the day, or it might look more like whole food carbs just after you've trained, for example. But that's really important that whole food carbs are being had after a training session if if they're not being had at any other meal of the day. So whole food carbs, that's where our more sugary fruit comes in, like bananas and mangoes and apples. It's where our starchier veg come in. So potatoes, sweet potato, beetroot, and then it's also where our grains and pseudo grains come into play. And I really like to recommend that we're prioritizing um, whole and ideally gluten-free grains and pseudo-grains. So that's things like quinoa and rice and buckwheat. And what else have we got in there? Things like teff and amaranth and legume flowers now. So there's lots of different options there. But that checklist, of course, there's going to be variances, like I said, but for so many people, like it just takes away this like element of uncertainty at mealtimes. And with that checklist, you can really navigate a a, a restaurant menu or some recipes that you want to start cooking, you can start to see like, um, you know, how do you get your food choices as, or meal choices as close to that list as possible and use that as like your barometer of a good meal choice. I think they're really, really useful tips for the general population in terms of adopting their um, whole lifestyle and diet and structuring meals around what you just said there, guys. So go back and record notes for sure. Now, Ali, coming to the end of the podcast, I'm really, really interested and it's gaining a lot of traction at the moment in terms of counting calories and counting nutrients. And, and I'm not sure that a lot of people through the social media realm understand the difference between the two. So in a nutshell, can you explain the difference between counting nutrients nutrients and counting calories and why, you know, counting calories can be a detrimental mindset for some. Mm, yeah. So, uh, you know, what are these things? We've got calories, which essentially is energy. Um, you know, some parts of the world call it calories, some parts of the world call them kilojoules, but essentially it's quantifying the energy that's within the food. And then you might 
you know, look at macronutrients that are contributing that energy. So within protein, fats and carbs, we're going to be deducing that calorie amount. But then we've also got all of these nutrients <laughs> and we've got nutrients like B12 and vitamin D and zinc and selenium and iodine, like all of these things that impact the way that we function, that impact the way our cells function, that impact the way energy is produced and therefore impact the way how we feel and, and, and impact how much energy we have. And so counting calories is this really simplified version of quantifying a meal or quantifying our you know, daily intake. And for a lot of people, especially those sort of trying to lose weight or gain weight, they want to make things simple so they look purely at calories. Whereas what I like to do is to, is to as much as possible do away with that because when we focus on what's in those calories and what is in those calories will be the micronutrients. If we can make sure that we're actually focusing on getting an abundance of these micronutrients, then that's when we will naturally start to calibrate our calorie requirements and actually be able to listen to what our body is asking for in terms of calorie requirements. You know, this counting of calories is a very like um, simplified way of doing it. It's also forgetting that our body is like a complex machine as opposed to uh, a, a maths equation. Um, and it also is really conducive to people getting quite fixated on a number rather than listening to their body. Whereas when we focus on getting nutrients, and so I guess what I mean by that is like, if we know that, okay, we've got a meal and roughly that meal could contain 500 calories. If we're focusing on only calories, then we would just focus on trying to get those 500 calories. But if we're focusing on nutrient density, then we're focusing on how am I getting those 500 calories? Like, is it just a muffin worth of 500 calories, which doesn't have much in the way of micronutrients? Or am I getting like a salad with essential fatty acids and um, lots of zinc and selenium and um, fiber? Am I trying to get all of that in my 500 calories? That's where the focus should be is what's contributing to the makeup of your meal um, and you don't have to focus so much on trying to meet a calorie requirement just for the sake of a calorie requirement. Love that, Ali. And I think it's really, really an important thing for me to say here is that I'm not totally against counting calories because I think it does serve a purpose in terms of education of what foods and what amounts mm. contained, well, so what calories, but I think counting nutrients is far more beneficial in terms of making sustainable progress and, and really making long-term lifestyle change. Yeah. And you make a really good point because using some sort of calorie counting tool in early stages of dietary change, especially if it's like the first time you're starting to get your head around like food and what's in food, it can be really helpful. So I often encourage clients to, to use like a, an app like MyFitnessPal and log their food for a couple of days, but it's really for educational purposes so that they can see, okay, when I build my smoothie with you know, X, Y, and Z, it looks very different to when I build my smoothie with A, B, and C. Hmm, that's interesting. 
do I feel differently after the XYZ smoothie versus the ABC smoothie? Let's see. So it's this educational tool that you can then take with you. So you're free of having to count stuff, um, but you can use it as education in the early, in the early stages. Now, time has absolutely flown during this podcast. I don't know what's happened. I'm blinking. It's now been an hour and a half. I love it. Before we wrap up the podcast, Ali, I, I want to thank you so much for your time and, and really appreciate you, you know, sharing your knowledge to the wider community, whether they be plant-based or just from a broader community. Before we get going, I'd love to know your main message and, and why you get up each and every day. In this particular space, I think my my message right now is is to just place less reliance on animal foods. You know, we live in a day and age where we have such an abundance of food that we can have access to, with nutrients that we have access to, without having to completely morph this production of animals just to satisfy what is quite a an old approach to eating. That's where I'm at at the moment. Love it, Ali. Very simple and, you know, hitting home with a great main message. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Where can people get in contact with you? Oh, thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having me today. Um, people can find me on Instagram at nutritionally, which is like nutrition and then Ellie, E-L-L-Y. Or they can find me at my website, which is the same. So it's nutritionally.com. And there I've got lots of wonderful recipes that are going to support that process of fat adaptation that I was talking about earlier, as well as different readings and stuff that people can dive into. And if anybody does want to ask any sort of further details or for some personal direction on what we've talked about today, then please feel free just to reach out to me on my website and we can go from there. But great to have this convo. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'll have all those details in the show notes for you guys. Ali, I reckon we can definitely tee up some future podcasts and and chat about a realm of different things. So I look forward to to that in the near future. I'm up for it if you are. (laughs) Have a great day, guys. Thanks again. Wow, we covered some territory in that one. Ali, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and enabling me to pick your brain during today's episode. Guys, if you enjoyed the content today, don't forget to share it around, tag your friends, and also leave a rating and review on iTunes so more and more people can get access to this information. Well, that's all from me, guys. I shall see you on the next episode.